Yeah, welcome to Thursday's programme, the final day of November. Hope you're well. It's uh, another cold one, isn't it? It's cold everywhere here in the UK. Tony Gosling joins me today. We're going to talk about Henry Kissinger, among other things. Nice to be with you. Reach out to me during the programme via the website, via the app. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Yeah, Tony joins me. I know you'll have plenty to say about Henry Kissinger and the other matters we'll be discussing, so do get involved. Download the app via the App Store for Apple or do it via Google Play. Do download the app and use the app and send a message direct to me through here at the studio. Right, so um, earlier today, Victoria Mary Clark, the wife of Shane McGowan, announced that the great man had passed away. He'd been unwell for ages. And you know I'm a big fan of Shane. I think you were a big fan of Shane too, and the Pogues, and his extraordinary career, really, and his extraordinary extracurricular activities over the years. An amazing man. He'd been in hospital recently in Dublin. He'd been diagnosed with viral encephalitis, swelling of the brain, and he looked really unwell, to be honest. He was discharged from hospital, but uh, he's passed away. Can't not mark that and not mention it. So um, rest in peace, obviously, to, to Shane. A um, lot of Irish people, a lot of people in London, a lot of British people. He was hugely popular in, you know, on these islands. He was hugely popular everywhere else too. France in particular, they loved him, the French. They loved their poets and their rogues in France. And of course, he had a big following in the United States. So lots of people paying tribute to him. Genius is an oft um, used word. It's overused, we think, the term genius. But Shane McGowan was a genius and he'll be missed. So there you are. All right. And this time of year as well, of course, he was born on Christmas Day, was the great man. You might have known that. I'm sure you probably did. So um, we'll, uh, we'll play some Shane later on. We'll play some Shane McGowan, no doubt about that. And we'll remember him. Right. Let's talk about some of the amazing that he made it to 65, really. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's all the more amazing when you look at people like um, Keith Richards, for example. You look at Keith Richards and you think, Keith, how? How like? How are you still here? We went to see The Stones at Old Trafford four, maybe five summers ago. I can't remember, four summers ago. And we were in awe where the missus and myself looking at Keith Richards in particular. It's one thing to see Mick Jagger poncing around, you know, in, in, approaching 80 as he was then. But to see Keith Richards, you think he shouldn't be here. Anyway, listen, we'll leave Tony Kissinger. Will we, Tony Kissinger? We'll leave Henry Kissinger to Tony Gosling. Tony's a former BBC journalist, of course. He presents a radio show every Friday out of Bristol. You know all about it. And he's a very, 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 very shrewd researcher, is Tony. And he knows a lot about Henry Kissinger. He died aged 100, former US Secretary of State. Of course, lots of media coverage. Very little criticism of Kissinger. Some talking heads saying that while he failed in Southeast Asia, are you, are you shitting me? Failed. It depends on what you mean by failed. Millions of people are dead because of Henry Kissinger. And that's, that's not um, subjective. That's an objective view, right? But they're saying he failed in Southeast Asia when he was the Secretary of State for Richard Nixon. But, but he triumphed in his dealings with China and Russia. Interestingly, the Russian President Vladimir Putin has paid a glowing tribute to him in a letter 
that he sent to Kissinger's wife, is that right? Or to his family? Um, I've been hearing lots this afternoon. As I said, Tony will have the definitive obituary for Henry Kissinger. COP28 is underway now. United Nations Climate Change Conference in the United, United Arab Emirates in Dubai. Joe Gears is there. Joe Gears is there. He's been, he, he has been lumped in with world leaders. I don't know if you've heard media coverage of it. World leaders are there, including King Charles. World leaders? Are you kidding me? Anyway, Joe Gears is there. What's made me laugh today is that the media has no shame. We know that. And uh, if you're prepared to say that the world is on the verge of collapse, they'll give you a, well, they'll give you a microphone. They will give you a platform. It doesn't matter who you are. So this made me laugh. Um, Good Morning Britain decided to throw a bone to Owen Jones. Little bit of charity. Owen Jones writes for The Guardian. He considers himself to be a socialist. He's not. He He's um, a Labour Party activist, I suppose you could call him. Labour Party member. He's an all-round pain in the arse, Owen Jones. Little virtue signaler, right? Never shuts up about trannies, right? And the rights of trannies. And trannies are being disappeared and all that crap. But in the last couple of days, he is feeling it, Owen Jones. He's feeling what, Richie? He's feeling the heat. He's taking some unmerciful stick in print, online, on telly, because he refused to do what the Israeli Defence Force wanted him to do, and that is to say that, yeah, yeah, Hamas was beheading babies and raping women. So he made, he made a video after he had been shown a video by the Israeli Defence Forces of some of the events on October 7th. And Jones said, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, Hamas is terrible to do that. You know, he said all the right things. But he said, I, I, they, they didn't show me any evidence of the, the baby atrocities. So they've piled in on him. They've really properly piled in on him. Like, I mean, I don't know what sort of skin Owen Jones has. I doubt he has thick skin in the way you or I would have thick skin. You know I went through this, don't you, back in 2019 for several days on Twitter after I wound up some Zionists. So I got it in the neck for days, but I didn't care because I just don't care about things like that. But I think it might be affecting him. But Good Morning Britain invited climate expert Owen Jones <laughs> to discuss climate change, probably to give him a break from all the... the um, crap he's getting online. And um, he was on a panel with Ella Gilbert. Ella Gilbert is a climate scientist. You can file this one under vaudeville. He was asked, Owen Jones, by your woman, your, your woman was Derek, Kate Garraway. Kate Garraway. Yeah. What, 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 what do you want? What do you want, Owen? COP 2028. What do you want? I don't want people to feel doom, you know, because often you look at Look, we saw over the summer, I sometimes worry we even forget those extreme weather events. They're mm. a portend of things to come. It was warm in the summer. Um, but you look at the impact in terms of drought, extreme weather events, famine, population displacement. Jesus. But the danger is you make people think, well, it's all disaster, we're doomed, and, and mm. that's the end of it. But we can make a difference now. It will still be a disaster, whatever happens. <laughs> <laughs> we can make a difference now. However, it will still be a disaster Whatever happens, you've got to keep that in mind, right? It will still be a disaster. We can make a difference now. It will still be a disaster, whatever happens. Whatever happens, it'll be a disaster, right? But there's a difference between a, a disaster okay. and a total catastrophe. There's a difference between a disaster and a total catastrophe. Do you hear that? But there's a difference between a, a disaster okay. and a total catastrophe. These are, these are scientific terms now. These are new scientific terms. I don't know if you were, were, were made aware of this. Catastrophe, total catastrophe and disaster. 
they're two completely different things, right? So, and if we minimise our emissions now, we can still make. I feel doomed. If we minimise our emissions now, we can keep it at a disaster and avoid it being a total catastrophe. That is exactly what he said. I'm not being a smug prick here. You know I'm not. That's what he did. Yeah, let's minimise our emissions. Let's keep it at a disaster because if we don't, it'll be a total. Catastrophe. Uh, Stop well, let's, feeling let's change. Uh, Ella, have you got some optimism as to the options? Yes, yeah, some optimism from a climate scientist, somebody who studied climate at uni. Well, certainly what Owen is saying is true. I mean... No, it's not true. How can you say that? It's true what Owen said, is that um, it's going to be a disaster no matter what happens, but we can prevent a total catastrophe. That's true. That's my scientific opinion, says Ella. There are some things that are inevitable. There are some changes that we can't go back on. Death and taxes. But there's still a whole world to save. There is still so much to be had from actually taking action now. The best time for action is 40 years ago. Yeah. But the next best time is today. And best time for action is 40 years ago, right? Back in 1983. But the next best time for action is today. <laughs> and that's why... That's, that's not scientific at all, is it? So if the best time for action was 40 years ago, the next best time surely would have been 39 years ago. And then the next best time after that would have been 38 years ago. And so on. I wasn't very good at mathematics in school, but I think I'm right. Things like COP28 are so important because although we are committed to some changes, you know, we may lose the West Antarctic ice sheet. We may see... We may lose the West Antarctic ice sheet. Glaciers in mountain regions disappear. But there is still so much left to save. And every single tenth <laughs> of a degree of warming makes a difference. Every single tenth of a degree of warming makes a difference. So every tenth we can save. Every one tenth of a degree of warming we can avoid makes a difference. It's so scientific this isn't it I'm just be, I'm bamboozled by the science so every single action every single upscale in ambition every single action every steak every sirloin steak not that we can afford sirloin steak dear listener Jesus wept it's like £7 now in the supermarket for a bit of sirloin steak you can have it you can keep it so every time you turn down a sirloin steak every time you say to your mates no I'm not going to Liverpool to watch the game this coming Sunday, Liverpool against Chelsea. No, I'm not. I'm going to stay at home for the planet. Every time you do that, it might prevent the Earth warming another one-tenth of a degree. And then it might just be a disaster and not a total catastrophe. You hear what I'm saying to you? That's, that's what you need to keep in mind. Oh, Jesus. Mary and Holy Saint Joseph. Marvellous. Yes. Johnny says, Johnny shocks. Well, I read this out for the laugh, will I? Because if I read it out and it's wrong, I might be sued. No, I'm, I'm not joking now. Johnny Shocks has sent me a message about the attack in um, Dublin last Thursday, right? Parnell Square, near the Gwaelskull. The Algerian man, you see? You see? I can get it right. You thought I was going to say Albanian again, didn't you? The Algerian man who did a terrible thing. He attacked people and stabbed a child very badly. And... Um, as far as you understand, the child is still very gravely ill, and a woman too. Anyway, right? Um, Johnny says the Dublin attacker worked at a business belonging to a very well-known Irish politician twenty years ago. It's going to break any day now. It will cause uproar in Ireland. Thank you, Johnny. I shouldn't really name the politician. And if it's out there on social media, people can find it anyway. But I'm not going to name him, just on the off chance that Johnny is wrong. The Dublin attacker worked at fruit at a fruit business around 20 years ago. Bleep, bleep, wife's family business. It's going to break any day now. So, the, so a politician whose wife 
has a family business in the fruit in the fruit and veg game. Apparently, the Dublin attacker, according to John, I'm giving it away now. Anyway, the Dublin attacker worked for this fruit business twenty years ago. It's going to cause uproar in Ireland, says Johnny. Go on, Johnny. Scoop of the season. That's the scoop of the season, Johnny. If it turns out to be right, might not be right. We'll see. Do you remember back in June, the government introduced a new system of colour-coded heat and cold warnings? Remember, launched in England to warn the public and to warn the NHS about high summer temperatures that could pose danger. Remember, like the colour-coded terror warning chart. Remember that? Years ago. We're at Amber. What does Amber mean? Well, Amber means that while not imminent, while not imminent, the threat of a terror attack does remain. So what does red mean then? Red means that a terror attack is highly likely. And that's how they went on post-September the 11th. Now, they introduced a similar system, heat warnings, so that the public, in their infancy, because the public are a bunch of infantilised fucking idiots, right? We can't just step outside and go, Jesus, it's queer warm now at the moment now. Or, Christ, it's freezing. I'll go back in, I'll put my duffel coat on, remember them? And I'll put a woolly hat on and my gloves. No, no, we'll, we'll, we'll watch out for the colour-coded warnings. Amazing shit, this, back in the summer. Well, they're using them today. They're delighted. Because it's a bit cold at the moment in the UK. It's November 30th. It does sometimes happen to be cold on November 30th. If you look back at November 30th over the years, you can do that very simply. The average temperature. It's often cold around now, right? Um, so, the Good Morning Britain programme, let's stay with it, sent Nietzsche Rajan, Nietzsche Rajan, to, well, to, to check in on how it's going, this new colour-coded alert system for, well, for the weather. The new system is designed to do exactly what it says on the tin. It's on the tin. Cliché monster. It's meant to alert what the temperatures, uh, the impact the temperatures will have on the health of the population. And that amber cold health alert that you mentioned, it's the first one we've had this year and it will kick into areas where the temperatures uh, either drop below two degrees. for Below two degrees. So it's at amber at the moment. The weather alert is at amber. It's kicking in now to places in the country that are at two degrees or below. Why? Why do people need to know? Five days or more or uh, drop below zero degrees for uh, 48 hours or more and the impact will be felt most likely across the whole population regardless of age or uh, people with medical conditions. But let's... The impact? Do you mean cold? Do you mean people will feel a bit cold, Nietzsche? Is that what you mean? Impact will be felt most likely across the whole population, regardless of age or uh, people with medical conditions. But let's... Yeah, it's the winter, though. It's the winter, and we kind of expect it to be a bit cold. So what's the impact? Is it the cold, and it'll be particularly felt, will it, by, by older people? Jesus, no, you never. You never, really. Older people are going to feel the cold a bit, already a bit more. And people who are vulnerable with medical conditions, they need to be told that the weather warning chart is at amber so that they know to look after themselves, do they? They need to know this, do they? They don't need to just look out the fucking window, no? Or just look at the weather forecast. Or listen to the radio. Every 20 minutes on the radio, breakfast radio. How's the weather looking, Simon? It's cold today, Nicky. It's cold today, yeah. Temperatures around about zero or minus one, so wrap up well. No, no, we need a terrorism-style 
weather chart with colours coded to the individual conditions so that people know what to do. Take a look at the whole country and see what's happening. If this uh, graphics here shows you the south of the country is on a green alert, meaning there's a minor impact on... So the south of England, as she said, it's green. It's, we're on green, so minor impact from the cold. Health and social care services. Uh, as we go further, Midlands, a yellow alert is in place for the east and west Midlands, uh, where temperatures dip to two degrees or below for 48 hours or more. And the impact there will most likely impact uh, vulnerable, the vulnerable and the elderly. Uh, Are you listening to this? Uh, and that amber cold health alert that and I... that's the rest of us now, north of the Midlands. We're on amber. I mentioned is in place for the northeast, northwest... Yorkshire and the Humber uh, and as I've already said this is when the temperatures dip to below two degrees or more for um, around five days uh, and that's for England, Scotland, uh, there's yellow weather warnings in place for snow and ice and you can see it's fairly busy here these are the sort of warm hubs that will be uh, You know, you know, they're getting away with this this is the thing you see and you have to use your imagination to wonder where is that all leading these you know, colour-coded um, warning systems for for terror or for weather or for whatever. I'll tell you where they're leading. And I have I, I had a dream about this. No, I'm, I'm not joking. Don't expect a gag. I actually had a dream about it. So in the future, if they have their way and your movement is restricted, so you live in 15-minute cities, and you're, you're not completely banned from travelling at all outside of the 15-minute city, but you are rationed in terms of the travelling you can do outside it, right, in order to limit your CO2 emissions. I really believe this is going to happen. What I envisage is something like you would have seen in some of the sci-fi films of the 1980s. I think every area will have dotted around it, will have these big screens, what they would have called in the 80s jumbotrons, and the screens will carry this type of information. Information about how the weather might be harmful to you. Information about how there is an above average prevalence of rotavirus in the area at the moment. So you might need to take precautions. Don't laugh at this. Can you picture this in the future? In their 15 minute cities. You, you have big screens, maybe not jumbotrons, but screens maybe at the sides of um, bus shelters. Screens that are showing news and stuff. But they've got information on them all the time about about virus prevalence in the area, about uh, CO2, all sorts of stuff. I think that's why they're going, you know, down this road of let's um, let let's let let's warn, let's accustom people, let's get them used to being warned about things that are completely harmless, and let's infantilize them. You know, you know. I mean, it's preposterous, isn't it? I mean, what do you think they do in Siberia? You know, it's freezing. So we put three jumpers on. We get good mittens and we, we wear hats and we get over it. And it's mad stuff, isn't it? Half past, um, not half past. It's uh, coming up for 18 and a half minutes past the hour of four o'clock. Tony Gosling is standing by. He will be with me in a moment. Maria says, spare a thought for the gardeners. Wonderful to finally have it cold. Not just great for earning money, but I feel a bit like hibernating anyway. I've great and flexible customers, so I'm lucky, says Maria. Thank you, Maria. Hi to Babs, who says, my iPhone just updated. And now when I add a new contact, there is a section, add pronouns. Is that right, Babs? Because my I've got an iPhone too, and it updated the other day. And now the interface is totally different. It looks different. 
the screens are much different than they were previously, but I haven't added any new contacts because I'm Billy Nomates. I haven't added new contacts to my private phone. And it's giving you the option to add pronouns, is it? Wow. That is interesting. I'll have to check that out later on. Thank you, Babs. Hello to Ian who says, I don't know about you, he says, Richie, but if we lose the West Antarctic ice sheet, I'll personally have nothing left to live for. <laughs> It'll be all over, says Ian. Mac says, I'd take one-tenth of a degree of warming new in Scotland, says Mac. Yes. Yes, you would. Gaz says, the lunatics have taken over. They have. Hi to Brendan. Hello, Brendan, who's listened for a long, long time. He says, um, it's his first time, though, texting. Texting you, Baldy, he says. Who are you calling bald? He says, I've tuned in because I'm sitting outside the chipper, waiting for it to open. Bollocks to the diet, says Brendan. Just saying hello because I'd love to hear my name on your channel. Brendan. How are you, Brendan? Brendan. There, I've said it five times now. Twenty and one half minutes past the hour. Uh, this week, the programme is sponsored by our friends at NutraHealth365.com. Get your, get your immune system in good shape for this coming winter. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C, and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. And Gervernie Coyne to be sending me your messages. Gervernie Coyne's how you are. Hi to John who says, Richie, the mainstream media sounds like it's taking its all, it's, you said all few breaths. Do you mean last few breaths? The mainstream media. Get, get back to me, John. I think you've got fat fingers, John. Just like me, I sometimes send text messages to people and they are indecipherable. Indecipherable they are. Even though I don't have fat fingers. It's just, do you know when they update these phones, they constantly, they shrink the the size of the keyboard on the phones, don't they? I find it very difficult now to text quickly, to send quick text. K says, colour, coded warnings, all of the linked to health, scaring the shite out of the gullible, says K. Thank you, K. I think you're absolutely spot on. I think you are bang on. Listen, let's talk about this for 30 seconds. I mentioned this on the papers. There is a podcast called The Papers. Extra, extra, read all about it. You can hear it Monday to Friday. Usually it's up before 8 o'clock in the morning. Don't get used to that, though. It might be 9 o'clock next week. I don't know. Anyway, The Papers. I mentioned this. There's a presenter at BBC Radio 5 Live. His name is Nihal Arsenayaka. Nihal Arsenayaka. He is a British... I don't know what the hell he is. British Muslim is he? I don't. I don't like to, to to make presumptions. You see, I don't know if he's Muslim. I don't know if he if his cultural background is different. I don't know what he is, but he's got a very good gig at the BBC. He's on BBC Radio Five Live. He's got a daily show, prime time. Now you might think you'd be happy. You might think, well, that's great. You know, I've got a high profile. People know me. I'm on the BBC with a national radio program. I should be in the pink. I should be absolutely delighted. No, Nihal Arsenayake was at a conference yesterday in Media City and he said his mental health is affected and uh, he's not feeling very well because um, it's too white at the BBC. Dramatic pause. It's too white. 
What do you think his colleagues make of that? The people who work on his programme, the producers who never get any credit. They do not. On the BBC, they never get a mention. I do not understand this because when I worked in commercial radio, the producer was always credited. More than once. You know, Billy would often say at WLRFM years ago, my producer Richie, Richie Allen. At the end of the programme, this programme was produced by Richie Allen. At the BBC, they don't give a shit about the producers. And obviously, Nihal Arsenaika doesn't either. Doesn't give a damn. It's too white here. Where do you think you're living, dickhead? I mean, where do you think you're living? The majority of the population in this country are white people. I don't know if that escaped your attention. So if you want to see people who look like you, I suggest applying, sending your CV and your showreel to India, to Pakistan, to Kuala Lumpur, to Sri Lanka, and then you'll meet darker-skinned people, Nihal. These people are disgusting, aren't they, people like him? They make me sick. I mean, they really do. Um, I have, sadly, once or twice listened to the guy because I do monitor the mainstream media during the day. And while most of them are lackeys anyway, there are one or two what I would call pretty good presenters at the BBC. They know their onions. They understand the medium of radio. Uh, he's not one of them. He is absolutely fucking useless. And there he is. Um, you know, again, what should happen in this case is he should just be moved out. And, and I'm not saying we punish somebody for having an opinion. No, this this is beyond having an opinion. 25 minutes it is past the hour. Anyway, I'll shut up, play a tune. Tony, the boy Gosling, will be live from Bristol to reflect on the life and times of Henry Kissinger. Ah, poor old... He's a big cuddly old fella, wasn't he, Henry Kissinger? He was lovely, wasn't he? He was a lovely fella, really. I think he only killed seven and a half million people in his time. I'm not sure... This is Candy Staten on the Richie Allen Show. What's the sense in sharing this woman? Candy Staten and Young Hearts Run Free, the Richie Allen Show. Would you believe it? I have a friend. I have two friends in France, Andrew and Sophie. Dear friends, lovely people. We mentioned Sophie, but we mentioned Andrew. Andrew's the pilot for British Airways. And he sent me a screen grab. It turns out that Babs is right when Babs said the new iPhone update offers you to offers you the, the ability it gives you the ability to add somebody's pronouns when you enter a new contact. So I've got Tony Gosling on the line, a great guy. He's a guy. Tony's pronouns are the man, right? So I could put Tony into my new phone, but I could choose non binary alongside his name if I want. Apple is very good. Tony Gosling is a decorated journalist and author, the presenter of the, not the BB, excuse me, not the BCFM um, radio show every Friday, uh, five o'clock from Bristol. We'll let you know where you can get it later on. I know you know it anyway. Let's welcome back to the programme, he, she, them, Tony Gosling. How are you? Did you realise that? Did you realise that? If you've got an iPhone, it now allows you to add somebody's pronouns when you create a contact. Very important that, isn't it? Hugely important. Well, I am definitely binary. You're binary. <laughs> There's no two for, ways. For, for the Apple. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating day uh, with this guy. I mean, I've spent much of my journalistic career um, tracking Mr. Kissinger and his various exploits. Uh, and, and also, of course, when I first started in the 1980s, uh, tracking back uh, what he'd been up to previously, uh, and I've I've sent you. I don't know if you're you're able to share it with your listeners. A sort of basic timeline of Kissinger because he started very early on, uh, and uh, and it was pretty much as soon as he appeared 
uh, on the scene as an author that he was also starting to attend the Bilderberg conferences in the late 1950s, Richie. Now, let's just remind our listeners before you take us through the weird and not-so-wonderful tale of Henry Kissinger. It was announced this morning, dear listener, that Henry Kissinger, former US Secretary of State at the BBC, says a man who played a pivotal and polarising role in US foreign policy during the Cold War has died at the age of 100. He was America's top diplomat and national security advisor during Nixon and Ford administrations. And the thing about you, Tony, I know that you've even come across this guy because you've covered Bilderberg on the ground for years, so you've been within metres of the guy. I know you've attempted to doorstep the guy. I know you've followed him around for years. People don't know very much about him, and they don't know that right up until he died today, this guy was still meddling, or meddling is probably is not putting it strongly enough, was still incredibly influential in terms of Western politics and Western political policies, wasn't he? But he's dead now. Go back to the beginning then. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Well, he was uh, a German. His na- real name's Heinz. He had a very strong, pronounced German accent for many years, which he tried to get rid of. Um, but, I mean, it's, it just trying to look at his position in history, he's a, he's a kind of Albert Pike, uh, John D, uh, Lizio Jelly, one of these big operators behind the scenes. Uh, you know, the, the sort of person that is, I mean, one of the things that you could always tell with Kissinger in certainly during my my time in journalism was the ridiculous deference that the mass media paid to him. He's like a god. I mean, you know, they would probably refer to him as a sort of king of the deep state or something quietly. Uh, but, you know, obviously not to the viewers and listeners, but but that's that's the sort of character he was. And he had this amazing ability to be respected by everybody, but not necessarily because he was doing the right thing, but because they I think they feared him. You know, they, they fear this guy is so powerful that, um, you know, we just have to simply. And, and, and the, the other thing it betrays is the way the journalists are actually manoeuvred and manipulated by the managers and the editors in these media corporations to say, oh, well, you know, make sure you treat Henry Kissinger with respect. One person that didn't, uh, just as a little anecdote, I was listening to um, Radio 4 when Jeremy Paxman used to do Start the Week back, I think it would be in the late 1990s, maybe early noughties, probably late 1990s, uh, to hear uh, Jeremy Paxman doing a very good job, actually, in quizzing him. Uh, asking him about his war crimes, uh, particularly in in uh, Chile and Cambodia. I mean, there's many of them. He just picked on those two, and he started quizzing Kissinger about these things. And Henry actually got out, got up, and walked out of the live Radio Four studio because he just doesn't want to talk about these things. Now, these that the reason is because they are war crimes, and it's worth saying that in 2001, just the day before the September the 11th attacks. Uh, in Chile, they, uh, which had got rid of the, the previous fascist government of Pinochet, which, which Kissinger helped install. Uh, in fact, I would suggest Kissinger did install that government through his coup. Uh, the the uh, Chilean government issued an arrest warrant for Henry Kissinger. And the next day, 9-11 happened. And I remember saying, this is so, sounds so weird, but uh, uh, flippantly that night, the night before 9-11, oh, well, Kissinger's going to have to start World War Three now to distract our attention. And of course, the next day we had 9-11. I was a little bit gobsmacked. But also the, the next year, the British also uh, in Britain, the L- London lawyers attempted to get an arrest warrant for him. 
So he's an extremely controversial figure, even though he is most definitely a war criminal, probably at least, well, I would say at least the very minimum, three million people died through the various coups and wars that he instigated. Now, can you explain, can you explain for our listeners how this is possible? I want to frame this around if Henry Kissinger is appointed as the Secretary of State, which is effectively the Foreign Secretary, isn't he only the arm of, or isn't he only an extension of the President's Cabinet? So isn't he doing only that which he is told to do? So you talked about Chile in the 70s and other things that you say he was directly responsible for. Lay it out for our listeners how it's a bit more complicated than that, and how he may have been acting of his own volition, or at least acting with other actors, maybe outside of his own government? Well, of course, he's part of the permanent government. He was a national security advisor in the run-up. Now, I mean, as he got started with this book, uh, it was um, a book about uh, nuclear war, surviving a nuclear war. And actually, it was all about, this is 1957. So he'd worked his way into the deep state as an advisor. So he was, you know, he wasn't going to be elected or de-elected or anything like that. For example, when there was a rapprochement between uh, China and the United States uh, back in 1971, I think it was 19, uh, no, 1972, uh, this is something which Kissinger had arranged basically on his own. And then once he'd got it sorted out, uh, all the cameras were switched on and President Nixon had his first visit over to China. The main purpose of all of that was and it was successful was to pivot the chinese to be anti-russian or anti-soviet as they were at the time so anti-communist and that was a, a great success of kissinger he was se- seen to be the one that could manage to do these things uh, but that's i think because he's been he was in touch with the deep state within all these various countries and he's somebody who i think his his the legacy with the china relationship for example carries on to this day when you see something like the covid uh, being cooked up in a in a lab or at least released in a lab in Wuhan in China with the Chinese and the Americans at the very top level cooperating, um, you know, it, 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 pretending in a way to have these trade wars and stuff. But on the very top level, when it comes to making war and releasing uh, deadly viruses around the world, uh, the, the, um, they're working together. So that's, I think, how he manages to work. You're right. He wasn't supposed to be the guy who was in charge, but uh, Nixon was out of his depth. As, as happens, m- many times you get a president with advisors around them that are far more in the know than the president. So the president, for example, in the China situation, said, right, Henry, just go and get on with it. And you said that that Kissinger wanted to pivot the Chinese against the Russians. But it's funny to hear you say that because this afternoon on the UK news channels, they're crediting Kissinger with normalising relations with Russia. So what was he doing? He was playing double agent, was he? With Russia oh, look, I mean, listen, he's, there's always a, dip, a double game. He successfully did pivot Mao. Uh, again, you know, there was much more cooperation with the Americans and the Americans withdrawing certain, uh, quite a lot of troops from Taiwan. And so the, uh, they decided, that the, the Chinese, that let's, let's open trade uh, relations with the Americans. And they started to, uh, and there'd been a, a breakout of hostilities on the Chinese-Soviet border. So, that, you know, it was a very successful manoeuvre. Maybe that was organised. But I always, I always remember being asked to do a talk about Bilderberg once years ago up in um, Strathclyde University. And, and one of the students asked me about it. I said, well, actually, it's like this guy runs the biggest protection racket on Earth. Anybody that doesn't go along with the deep state's plans, that is to say, really, the new world order, the, you know, the new world America uh, plans, then uh, they they get a, a, a threatening letter or maybe a bullet in the head. And, it, and in fact, what that really means is mercenaries will turn up on the ground 
the jackals and start uh, basically destroying their ability to run the country. You know, everybody likes the peace because that enables the tax to be collected. Everybody's kind of happy. But as soon as you've get, got mercenaries blowing things up here and there and everywhere, uh, I, you know, I believe Kissinger was one of those people that used to do that. I mean, he certainly was uh, in, in places like Indonesia and Chile on a massive scale. Uh, that then uh, then your your economy is disrupted. And so that's the power that Kissinger had during his time is he could topple your economy. He could make your economy scream. This is a famous phrase of the people of, you know, the American State Department of the Chile coup era. And uh, they, that's they feared him, basically. Uh, and But yeah, he managed on the world stage to appear to be the peacemaker. He was very much a two faced character. And, and I mean, towards the end, it's been amazing to see him. Actually, you know, saying, look, let's stop this war in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, maybe things have just moved beyond him. And I think this is, a, this is a good way for him to have gone out, really, saying, look, let's just stop this because the Russians are not going anywhere. The Ukrainians are not going anywhere. Let's just redraw the boundary and have a peace settlement in Ukraine. Yeah, he was, um, yeah, he was heavily criticised by the Ukrainians, wasn't he, for saying that because the Ukrainians said, well, what Kissinger wants is for us to give up some territory. Um, yeah, Kissinger said, yeah, absolutely, it's going to have to happen. It's going to have to be peace. Not to be remotely silly about this, but you describing Kissinger, and you and I, we, we've known each other for yonks now, and we've talked about Kissinger in the past. He reminds me, and I wonder if the character, um, Peter Baelish, Lord Baelish, known as Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, who's um, a master manipulator of people and starts wars and, you know, always to kind of better his own situation. Um, from, from, from the Game of Thrones, he sounds very much like him, Kissinger in terms of he was able to do that he was able to operate seemingly as a confidant and as a peace broker and as somebody working for the greater good but in fact he wasn't Game of Thrones fans will know who Peter Baelish is but it sounds very much like like that character and um, I remember asking you years ago about um, about about him and Bilderberg and you said to me Richie he's still turning up not only is he turning up but he's still hugely involved in the Bilderberg meetings year year in, year out, where quite often you said to me that the agenda for the next year or two is kind of given to the attendees, maybe by people like Kissinger himself. And did he, did he was, was Bilderberg his brainchild, was it? Was he the guy who came up with the idea? No, I don't think it was no. directly his. But once it had started in 1957, he realised this was where he was going. To, I mean, he, he attended... Uh, I'm most, no, not all, but most of the conferences since 57, he's been there with the most regular attendee of anybody uh, at these at these Bilderberg meetings, which is essentially a US CIA led plot to bring about a one state in Europe, a kind of United States of Europe. And that's, I mean, there's all sorts of other aspects to the Bilderbergs, particularly, you know, neutralizing individual nations and letting big corporation, corporations take over and banks and things. Uh, and also, of course, the geo- all the geopolitical wars and things around that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's yeah, he's he's he's. Uh, but but I mean, wh- when it comes to uh, the the relationship with, I think the the actual facts around you know what he was up to. The, you know, that we can we can speculate about uh, you know what kind of guy he was. But you know, the only people who've really really managed to drill down into exactly what he said and what he did and what influence he had and prove that he did have a massive amount of influence behind the scenes with covert operations, secret assassination squads, uh, secret bombing of Cambodia. This all came out, but it was it was actually Julian Assange uh, when he was still 
running WikiLeaks that released the Kissinger cables back in 2013. And he did a really, really good job. What did they say, Tony? Sorry? What did the, remind our listeners, what did the Kissinger cables reveal at the time? Well, the cables showed us, for example, Kissinger was secretly, what it enabled us to do, and that's punters and journalists, is to go through and look at specific topics and get all of the Kissinger cables that related to that country or whatever, all popping up on the screen in date order at the same time. They did a fantastic job. And WikiLeaks worked with 20 different uh, big media co- uh, companies from around the world, including the big wire services like the Associated Press. And so it was it was possible to piece together Kissinger's influence over these events, uh, which was damning. I mean, for example, he was the first uh, senior person in the, in the National Security Council in the States, uh, obviously as Secretary of State, uh, who was uh, secretly commissioning wiretaps of politicians and and newspaper editors. And you could see how this was any anybody that was basically onto him uh, in in um, organising these criminal and war criminal secret coups against other countries. He was commissioning the um, the uh, secret state, the CIA, basically, uh, to and the NSA to, um, to 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 tap the phones of all these people and look, to go into their mail and all that sort of thing. So what you've got is you've got this is really in a way the beginning of the the massive powerful deep state that we can see today being implemented as a kind of technocracy where the the, the journalists and the politicians are on the back foot the whole time because they're having their mail read, their uh, you know their 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 houses bugged, their phones bugged, then um, black operations conducted against them. Uh, and I think this this is an one of the most important things that Julian and WikiLeaks revealed was just how key Kissinger was in this change around in policy after World War II, from the United States being this sort of trusted superpower, you know, maybe in the well, I mean, obviously with Vietnam and Korea it wasn't, but. Uh, you know, that seen as a, pa- a power that could be relied on and trusted, suddenly it's actually, no, this is uh, becoming a, a, a fascist country, a dictatorship where the big companies and the deep state are actually, um, they've constantly got the press and the politicians on the back foot and anybody that speaks up for humanity uh, is going to get taken out. And the Cold War was a way of keeping people in line, wasn't it? It was a way of keeping people in fear. We learned years later, didn't we? that much of what various US defence secretaries were saying in the 70s, particularly in the 60s and 70s, about Russian capability, was nothing short of a a lie, just a flat-out lie that the Russians had all of this technology and that they could destroy the United States and we have to have this arms race. All of this was to keep people, you know, in fear while they did this. And if 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 you were to describe, you've already kind of done it, but if Kissinger had... As, as an individual, if he had a desired outcome, if there was a world he wanted to create, what would it look like? What sort of society globally was Kissinger invested in bringing into being? What was he all about, really? Yeah, well, look, he was a, a, a one-world government man. He was a globalist. He believed that you had to have one... Uh, you know, he wasn't a big fan of the United Nations because even to this day, it's it still represents all the different countries. There are people there... Uh, on the General Assembly that will speak up against uh, any kind of you know implementation of a world government, but he was definitely into that. Um, uh, the, the, that's you know t- almost taken as read with with Kissinger is that you know this was the his major in a way in a way his major thing was just trying to make sure that I mean he's he's famously when it comes to the EU he was very much involved in as I said uh, getting the EU together. There's a fantastic quote. 
from from Kissinger about uh, he wanted to have he wanted to just be able to dial one number to talk to Europe. Yeah. And um, would people please will people please uh, do that? I mean, he's he's denied that he ever said that, but he's he was quoted for something like ten or fifteen years as saying it before he was he actually denied it. So that he may, it maybe he actually really did say that. But so what happened, see. Tony? Tony, this is important. Sorry to interrupt yeah. that. Stay with this. What happened to Kissinger then? Because he fled the Nazis and ended up in the United States Army. He actually left Germany. He escaped out of Germany, ended up in the United States Army, became a captain, and then went back to Germany. Now, somebody who saw what happened in Germany, why would that guy be in favour of imposing that on the rest of the world. That's the thing I suppose most people will be asking. Was he, this is going to sound very tabloidy, but was he just evil, the guy? Was there something wrong with him? Well, I think there was, but not in that way. I, I mean, what Henry, was he, if he was still with us, would, would say is that he's, he's fed up with all of these uh, wars, you know, and the various conflicts between these big superpowers. And that the only way you can do that is to have a powerful world government to bang heads together and to have... Uh, you know, all these other institutions like the World Health Organization were very important to him because they started to get um, national politicians into the um, mindset of thinking globally. And and he believed that this was a way of stopping wars. Now, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that. I think there's a, there's a deliberate attempt to actually get these wars going um, and to have a centralized power right now. I mean, you, all you need to do is look at the sort of people who would be running it all to see that it would be a, a basically the enslavement of humanity. You said he was fed and up so, of war. This is interesting. You said he was fed up of war. So it sounds like the guy had the philosophy that you need to break a few eggs to make said. an omelette. You know, that's, because that's what he said. Yeah, because but but, but, but let me let me let me, let me stay thought, with this because hang on, hang on, hang on. War as a way to stop war. Yeah, but yet he went right. Yes, it? yeah, that's ex- that's the point I wanted to make. Yeah, so he you know was behind the um, imposition of coups in Central Latin America and other places. Lots of people died. People were tortured. People were disappeared. You talked about Chile earlier on. And he thought, well, it's worth it if we get to a place where, you know, we don't have any of this anymore. So it sounds very warped. So, so was he used then? Was Kissinger just another pawn, even if a very big pawn, a serious no, pawn? No, no, he wasn't a pawn. He was definitely a mover and shaker. But he... I mean, it, when his actual power in the United States in the government was mainly between 1969 and 77, and uh, that was when he was at the, uh, ran the National Security Council, and then he became Secretary of State under Nixon. Um, but there was a, another really important thing that that happened just after that, which was in 1971. This is all during the Vietnam War, and Kissinger was one of the main actual pushers of the Vietnam War. He was, I mean, that was a most obviously a hideous conflict. Hundreds of thousands of innocent people died. It was really, if you want to step step back from Vietnam, it was part of the United States after World War II replacing the old French colonial, which is, it was mainly French uh, colonies around there. Uh, at control of the drugs trade. So at the end of the Vietnam War, the Americans have pretty much wrested control of, you know, opium production and whatever. So, you, you know, there's for those of us that were watching back in the 1970s, the, the, the B-52 bombers, uh, you know, carpet bombing uh, uh, Vietnamese cities, at the end of it, that's what it was really about. It was about pushing U.S. power and U.S. puppets in that part of the world to take over from the French colonials. Uh, but 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 in order to do that, in 71, he basically pressed the button which ended 
US economic success after the war. Because, I mean, the United States had been such amazingly successful, high standards of living, almost total full, full employment. Uh, you know, they had the best standard of living anywhere in, on the planet, basically. And they could produce pretty much anything. You know, they were pr producing all sorts of new innovative ideas. There was the brain drain. Everyone was going to the States uh, into technology jobs over there in Britain. But in 71, to carry on the um, to carry on the Vietnam War, uh, Kissinger advised uh, and pushed for the uh, taking the US dollar off the gold standard. And that was really the beginning of the end for the dollar, which is where we, why we are where we are now. They became, they came to rely on uh, the value of the petrodollar, that is to say, uh, oil, propping up the value of the dollar because it was the only um, currency used to trade oil. Uh, it was, it's becoming much, much less so now. Uh, and so, but that, that was a really important change, I think, in, in America's ability to actually be be economically independent to fight. I mean, you know, you think about it. The United States has lost the battle with China and many of the many other countries around the world to compete, uh, and that's really why because they've completely destroyed themselves with this debt because they got into money printing uh, back in 1971 on the advice. Uh, and pressure from Kissinger to carry on the Vietnam War. To carry on the Vietnam War. I'm going to read a few comments. Don't don't jump in just yet. Uh, this from Chris. It's very funny how in Kubrick's Doctor Strange Love, the Russian premier is called Kiss Off. That's from Chris. Hi to G-Man who says, didn't Kissinger also help set up the petrodollar? Tony's just been talking about that. Thank you for that. Um, hello to Ian who says um, he's looking forward to hearing the Not the BCFM Politics Show tomorrow uh, out of Bristol where Tony will be discussing this in probably even more depth. That's 5pm uh, this week.org.uk for more on that. I'll put a link to it on the podcast, but you know all about it. Anyway, Gaz reckons he was the perfect bad guy. He should have been an actor, Kissinger, uh, the perfect bad guy in any movie. Yet he moved people. Um, everybody who ever met him. Now, by everybody, people who were, people with a, with a high public profile who would have met Kissinger over the years, they had nothing but good things to say about the guy, you know, in terms of his personality. Strange that, isn't it? Um, he well, in a, way, in a way, it's not so strange because with his book, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, you know, as I said, came out in 1957, he showed uh, that he had been thinking ahead of the game. I mean, everyone was wondering, what on earth is this going to new these nuclear weapons? What are we going, you know, how are they going to affect the world? The balance of power. Everyone was afraid. You know, obviously, these things are incredibly dangerous and powerful. And, you know, he, I, so I think that's one of the ways he got so much respect and he managed to sort of, infiltrate himself really into the top of the deep state in the United States. But I mean, it, you know, you, you can't actually just say, you know, it's all criticism because that was a, a very useful thing for him to have done is to sort of spell out, look, we've got nuclear weapons. Let's just face up to it and understand that, you know, diplomacy is now far more important than it ever was in the past. And that's, that's how he kind of, uh, you know, I think how he made his name. He also, another thing, he did, which was really brilliant, actually. It was 1972. He started the um, uh, Strategic Arms Limitation Talks Treaty because up until then, there'd been this crazy arms race going on with the Soviets and, and the Americans just racing each other to build more uh, uh, hydrogen bombs and neutron bombs and God knows what. Uh, and so the SALT Treaty was finally signed in 1979. But that was Kissinger's work. You know, very important job. And, you know, so we've got to give credit where it's due. I mean, I, you know, I... He's a very complicated character. Yes, there was he organised these horrific coups in Indonesia and Chile in 1973, but secretly behind the scenes. I mean, people at the time watching the news would have seen, oh, my goodness, there's been a coup. 
but they wouldn't have known, Did and they didn't. Nobody knew until the, the various yeah. leaks afterwards that Kissinger had been behind all this. That's right. And the same with same with Chile. When we see a coup today, uh, you know, we I think are a little bit quicker. I mean, those of us that are paying attention to figure out who's behind the coup. But back in those days, we assumed, oh, it's just the military have decided to take over. No, it was Henry. Uh, was, and the same with the the, the uh, Turkish invasion of Cyprus. That was him giving them the money and the and the means to do it. Uh, Pietro, hi Pietro, and others are reminding us of Christopher Hitchens' book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. That's right, came out about twenty odd years ago. Uh, he only killed three million, says Anne. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, awful man. Uh, before we talk about other matters, because there, there are things I want to get your opinion on, because there's some huge news this week. Um, did he say? I think he said it. He referred to older folks as useless eaters and that the population needs to be decreased, did he? Was he one of those? Oh, I've never heard. Uh, look, I mean, you see these kind of things going around. You've got to be able to source them, really. Uh, the only reason I use the other quote, which he denies, is because so many other top people were quoting it themselves, uh, credible people and newspaper people at the time. Uh, but, look, you know, yeah, the other thing is 73, the Yom Kippur War, which, you know, obviously has been very much in people's minds uh, the 50th anniversary of that, which was when the uh, this attack on Gaza um, started by the Israelis uh, a few few couple of months ago, um, that was that was him as well. He was very much involved in supplying. In fact, what happened was the Israelis asked him for I think it was something like about half a million dollars worth of uh, uh, or five. Hang on, 500 million dollars worth of uh, arms to replace the arms they'd used in the Yom Kippur War. And of course, there were American uh, troops flew over to help the Israelis at that point too. Uh, but but uh, Kissinger insisted that they should have th- at least three times, four times more. And this really annoyed the Arab countries, which led to the arms embargo against the United States in the winter of 73, 74. Any of your older listeners will remember having to queue for that was Kissinger. He did that, you know, because he was supporting the Israelis far more than they even you know, asked him for. And the, the oil embargo. Is, yeah, the oil embargo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the uh, yeah, it was the, you know what they called the energy crisis, the oil crisis. We were yeah. all queuing for petrol for weeks and months actually. But seventy four, really important. Uh, Nixon was forced out right over Watergate. But if you really start drilling into that, you'll find that Nixon had demanded uh, the FBI files on the JFK assassination. So really important. I mean, you know, this is this was something that was not going to be allowed to come out. I mean, they'd had the, they're having the Warren Commission and all that sort of stuff. But Nixon didn't believe it like the rest of us now. And he said, I want to see all the files. And he was demanding and demanding this. Well, eventually, uh, suddenly, oh, dear, look, you know, there's a big scandal. And Nixon is going to have to come out. Uh, he's going to have to leave as president. And he was impeached and booted out. Uh, but but that was actually what it was really about. And of course, Kissinger was in sitting in. You can see pictures of him sort of stood behind Nixon with this little silly smile on his face, you know, where he knows what's going on. And, and, and if you're going to dig into this, Mr. Nixon, president or not, you know, we're going to get rid of you. And they did. Is there, um, is there a 21st century, is there a um, 2023 version of Henry Kissinger on the world stage, is there? That we know. Well, of. I had a good. I had a look. I listen. This is. Uh, I was crunching my brain cells on this earlier. It's a very difficult question to answer, and I was thinking initially about some of these um, top Bilderbergers, like um, somebody like Peter Thiel or Elon Musk. You know, these sort of internationalists that now see themselves as the sort of kingmakers, the kings of the world, and also, of course, with lots of fingers in the media pies, as Kissinger had, with all these favours that were being done for him across the Western mass media. Uh, but but I think 
probably actually King Charles is is a similar figure. He's extremely, um, you know, he he likes to pretend that he's not really very political, but actually he's making political speeches all the time. He's a big manoeuvrer when it comes to uh, geopolitical tectonic plates, such as the Middle East, as he's you know been been very strongly um, uh, anti. Uh, Hamas and well, I shouldn't has really say he that. though? No, I don't think I don't think he said anything. Has he? T? I don't oh, think yes, he said he very did. much. Oh yeah, in the King's speech, he was uh, he was extremely against the um, uh, Palestinians. He, he said something about that straight away in the King's speech, and he made a speech I think just the day before, just after the uh, attack happened on Israel, uh, which was absolutely condemning Hamas as terrorists, which they're not. You know, they're a legitimate uh, representation of the Palestinians' right to self-defence, which is their right in international law. So these these uh, monikers of, oh, such and such is a terrorist, well, they may be, but what are they actually representing? I mean, look at the Israelis. The Israelis are, are, are hideous terrorists. They've been killing uh, men, women and children, but particularly women and children is the thing that makes it so disgusting. Something like, you know, we hear the official figures around four or 5,000. Uh, maybe the real figures are up to sort of 30,000, some are saying, because there's so many people whose bodies still haven't been found under, rubble, under yeah. the rubble yeah. uh, because you're not allowed to go back and, you know, and, and even try and excavate your family from the rubble because they're threatening to bomb you and kill you and there's the Israeli army wandering around. I don't think so, you can you use them. Um, can I just say, I don't think you can use the excuse of self-defence when you've murdered women and children. Now, Hamas did definitely murder some women and children. How they did that is up for debate. And I want to talk to you about Owen Jones in a minute, because as a journalist, and I'm speaking to a fellow journalist, this is very interesting. But when you do, you see, I've always made the case, I never supported the IRA, even though I am a dyed-in-the-wool Irish Republican. But I never had any time for the IRA, because once you start killing taxi drivers... You know, because they're because they're unionists, and when you attack Remembrance Day parades, you become a terrorist. You know, but if you target specifically military installations, I don't like it, but I can make an argument. Hamas did some terrible things. I saw their own videos on October seventh. So for me, um, yes, Israel's response is disgusting. I don't. I, I despise Israel. I despise the Israeli government, not the Israeli Israeli people. But what Hamas did, um, some of what happened on October seven was disgraceful. Disgraceful. All, all of what Hamas have been doing on the 7th of October, the Israelis have been doing it for decades. I know, but it doesn't justify, it does it? A knife for a knife makes the whole world blind. About killing, killing and imprisoning innocent civilians is what Israel's been doing to the Palestinians. I know they have. But why doesn't Hamas reserve so, its attacks for Israeli military and Israeli police installations? I don't I understand it. it. You know, we need also, I don't, I'm sure you've been around the articles on the grey zone, Max Blumenthal. On there, he's explaining that maybe most of the people that died, the Jews uh, uh, in, that died on the 7th of October, were actually killed by the IDF, either from helicopter gunships or there was, you know, there's certainly, I mean, there's a, the, the guy who was, uh, actually, I think it was a woman tank commander saying, well, I I um, um, shot the first tank rounds into Kibbutz Berry. They were just destroying these kibbutzes, uh, and they didn't really care if the Israeli hostages were killed. So, I mean, I think you've just got to be very careful about using this word terrorist. Yeah, but BBC so do you, and so does Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal needs to be very careful, because what he's, what he's doing is he's speculating. And of course, Max Blumenthal, like myself, I have very little in common with him, but both of us, I, I would probably, we would find agreement 95% on 
the Gaza, the Palestine situation, the Palestine question, but it's speculation. And I'm going to say this, like it or lump it, I don't mean you like it or lump it, T. I mean our listeners can like it or lump it. A broken clock is right twice a day. Israel is not always wrong. Not every single word that comes out of the mouth of the Israeli government is a lie. You know, they're not wrong all the time. You know, this thing about the... this. You know, this thing about the, the Israeli Defence Forces killed the people inside um, Israel on October 7th. To me, it's max of bullshit. I'm not saying that some people didn't die in friendly fire exchange. Um, it happens, I know that. But Hamas went in there and did some terrible things and they put some shitty videos online. I saw them. The videos well, I they mean, put online. You're using some peculiar language here. No, what Hamas did is what any organised... language. The places they went into... Are, are places where which the Israeli Israeli state is illegally occupying. I mean, you know, you might think it's okay for them to do that, and and, and whatever. I don't think it's thing, okay maybe, for them to do that. Agree on is that Israel is a terrorist state. I do agree I mean, with the you. People who are running it are ex-terrorists. Fascists. The woman, uh, Zippy Livni is the daughter uh, of the guy that blew up the King David Hotel. She's the ex-foreign uh, minister of Israel. She's a daughter. Yeah. Th- this is this is where where um, you know you you just I think have to understand that the Israelis are very very good at spinning whatever they're do- they're doing to make out that the Palestinians have no right to self-defense. Of course, this idea of bombing the whole of Gaza uh, is an absolute war crime, and you know it's it's one of the most disgusting war crimes I think we've. I agree. Since the end of the Second World War. I agree uh, with you. Because it's just so unnecessary. I agree with you. But I've maintained my entire life, at least th- the part of my life where I've been conscious, that um, every, every life is sacred and sacrosanct, particularly the lives of civilians. And I want yeah, people well, what's to understand. What's going to happen at midnight tonight is potentially the Israeli Defence Force is going to start bombing again and killing indiscriminately again. And that's supposed to be. Uh, you know, this is argued by the West to be, oh, we can't have a ceasefire. You get the Western press, uh, you know, all of the Anglo-Zionist empire uh, politicians. I mean, we've had our, you know, even our Bristol MPs, Labour MPs, would not vote for a ceasefire. Now, obviously, even a child, three years old, can see a ceasefire is necessary, Richie. And, yeah. and Benjamin Netanyahu, he claims to be Jewish. It's obvious that he's not one of God's chosen people. I mean, is he having a laugh? I agree. This from Patricia, the IDF is respected as defence for Israel, uh, but Hamas defending the Palestinians are labelled as terrorists. I, I totally get Patricia's point again. Uh, don't, don't interrupt me for 25 seconds because some of our listeners might, know, might not know. Um, there isn't a mainstream commercial radio presenter ever. Um, um, who's gone as far as saying some of the things I've said about Israel on radio over the years on commercial radio. I do not believe Israel has any right to exist. Its claimed right to exist are based on two very dubious treaties, the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the following year's Balfour Declaration. The partition of Palestine is completely illegal. What happened after that, the 800,000 Palestinians kicked out by the Stern Gang and Ergun, the murders of 15,000. It's terrible. Israel is an apartheid state. Its government is psychotic. The land belongs to the Palestinians. I totally agree with all of that. And I want people to listen to that. What I cannot stand is I cannot stand groups that purport to defend the rights of people, as Hamas purports to defend the rights of the Palestinians. When civilians are killed, I can't bear it. 
you know, attack military installations, attack the IDF by all means, but don't kill people and don't parade people's bodies around in pickup trucks and all of that shit because it makes it very difficult for people like us who totally support the Palestinian cause. It makes it very difficult because you can't justify that. You can't justify the IRA blowing up a Remembrance Day parade. You cannot justify blowing up a pub in Guildford or in Birmingham and killing dozens of people playing fucking dominoes. I'm not shouting at UT. You cannot justify that. That's the thing that gets me. As bad as it is in Gaza, as bad as the blockade is, and I don't know because I've never experienced it, when you kill people, you know, and maybe some of those people were killed in the crossfire, maybe, but Hamas definitely killed women and children, in my opinion, as far as I can well, see. Look, and that's, in, in that's the horrible. IDF, definitely. The, no, listen, I mean, it's no, there's no question about it. The Israeli Defence Force personnel have uh, testified that this was going on, that they were told to... Uh, fire into areas and you know if you look at the uh, for example that kibbutz berry there are various other loads of other areas yeah. where you can see the houses have been blown to pieces not by hamas by the idf and they have this hannibal doctrine as i'm sure you know yes uh, where they better don't to be really killed than captured yeah. too much about yeah. about killing hostages and in fact we've seen this with uh, many of the hostages that were taken by hamas the israelis have killed them by bombing them now that's just why we've had massive demonstrations out on the streets of tel aviv and i would now say uh, that, 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 you know, you cannot label Netanyahu's government as a Zionist government anymore because so many Zionists, either in London, in uh, Washington, uh, all over the world and in Tel Aviv and all over Israel are now absolutely fed up with um, Netanyahu and they're trying to get rid of him. What he represents is this greater Israel bloc. Uh, and that is the a political far right bloc, which is based around the 1920 British map uh, of the uh, the um, uh, the Palestinian state that the Israelis wanted to start um, colonizing before, by the way, Transjordan had been created in the late 1920s. And this it map the British created in, in 1920 was used by uh, Smotrich, this far right nutcase from Israel earlier this year in April, I think it was on one of his podiums. And, and the, all of the Arab nations are saying, look, he wants to take over Jordan, too. So these are the problem, not the Zionists anymore, because yeah. a lot of the Zionists are doing the best job they can to get Netanyahu out. 8,000 children may be dead in Gaza. That sickens me to my stomach. You know, a lot of... We're a different breed, you and me, because we're old school. A lot of people will talk about these things, and maybe maybe I don't have the right to judge, but I don't reckon it impacts on, 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 on people. I think people have been become desensitised to it, and it becomes a talking point. It haunts me, to be honest. I can't bear it, what's going on there. I can't stand it. When I see that guy, Peter Lerner, from Harrow, who's um, a top um, communicator now for the IDF, lying through his teeth on the BBC and on Sky. It makes me sick to my stomach to see a young girl put a blanket over her dead body. That horrible video we saw two weeks ago of the father carrying the boy missing the top of his head. It makes me sick. It is evil. The Israeli government, subsequent governments, consecutive governments, evil beyond belief. I totally yeah, so the, agree with that. The it's question horrible. is, what's it about? That's the question. What is really, really going on? Are they mad? A lot of people called Hitler mad. I don't think they are at all. I just think they've got an evil plan because you've got to understand why Why would anybody want to turn the Holy Land into hell into as they've it, done yeah. over the last couple of months? I mean, that's what they've been doing. And it, this is it's obviously uh, there's, there's something dark, should we even say occult, satanic about this uh, this government in Israel? And I think it's pretty clear to me 
that the it's the Albert Pike scenario where he wanted a First World War and a Second World War and a Third World War. This is the grandmaster of the um, the Scottish Rite Freemasons in in the 1880s over in the United States. He said, look, we we, we need to create this. You know, he's he's a deist basically and a Luciferian, and he wanted to get rid of the Abrahamic faith. So what he said was the First World War um, will be, I mean, this is in a nutshell, right, will be used to clear the Ottoman Turks out of, of um, uh, the Holy Land, which it did. Uh, and Allenby, the British general, uh, had a Battle of Gaza in 1917. Uh, at the end of the Battle of Gaza, where he pushed the Turks out into northern Palestine, uh, that was when the Balfour Declaration, at the end of that week, was published in the um, in the Times of the London. Times of London, yeah. Uh, a, a, a year later, in 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 uh, 1918, there was another big battle, which was the Battle of Megiddo in northern Palestine, where Allenby again kicked the Turks out further north, uh, really, and then he and he went up to Damascus, I think it was after that. But at the end of that week, uh, guess what happened? They signed an armistice with the Turks, and World War One was finished. So it does rather look as if maybe Pike, they were following Pike's plan. Uh, so the idea was then, after that, obviously, you know, you had the British mandate, you had uh, the um, uh, creation of um, the Transjordan and these various other countries. You had the beginnings of, uh, of Jewish migration. You then had the Second World War. And after that, well, of course, there was loads of the, has the Havara agreement between the Zionists and in 1933 and the, and it's, anti-Semitic, the it's anti-Semitic to talk about the Havara agreement did you not know that oh, you're not allowed yeah, to, well, you're was, not allowed to talk about was, that according to John Mann uh, and uh, yeah Ken Livingston mentioned it and then he was just booted out of the Labour Party like weaponising anti-Semitism that's what they've been doing weaponising so, the truth yeah, so, so anyway with the creation of the Israeli state uh, in 1948 and by the way it was voted for by the United Nations with a bit of help from Nelson Rockefeller and Victor Rothschild uh, they got the vote through. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is the third part of Pike's plan, or the, yeah, the, the, the war number three, which is planned to be uh, a kind of pseudo-religious war. The idea with the Zionists, uh, nihilists, which is what uh, Pike calls them, having a massive battle with the Islamic world. And the idea is to discredit these Abrahamic faiths forever, saying, oh, look, all these world wars, they're just fighting these wars over religion, and we need to just get rid of these stupid religions and have our own... Uh, you know, kind of nice pantheistic man-made religion to take over. That was Pike's plan, and it does seem to me as if that's exactly what the the um, the Israeli far-right government, the Greater Israel Bloc, are planning. Remember, of course, Hitler had this thing, Lebensraum. We don't have enough land. Yeah, we need right. to steal some land, and this is exactly what uh, it's the Hitlerian plan that um, uh, that Netanyahu is following. And you know, with all the Zionists going over uh, from Europe uh, before the Second World War. The ones that were left in Europe, this is the ones that had held the rabbinic tradition, you know, from the, the Torah, old, very, very old kind of old school Jews, hundreds of years of learning in there. Uh, they were just exterminated, wiped out. So all we're left with is mostly Zionist Jews after World War Two. Craig says, and he makes a good point. Could arguments be made for atrocities allegedly committed by the Israelis? Of course, says Craig. However, Hamas also has a track record of horrific persecutions of their own population, and it's often ignored. It is ignored. He's right, Craig. Um, Hamas is nothing to be, you know, to be defended. I don't mean, again, I'm not having a go at you, but Hamas is no group of 
decent um, revolutionary defenders of the Palestinian people. They're not really... And we know, of course, because the Times of Israel has done a fantastic series of articles that Bibi Netanyahu uh, has engaged in a policy of propping up and funding Hamas for years because it meant it, it made it very difficult then for the Palestinian Authority, right? It made it difficult for a two-state solution to ever really get off the ground. It's murky, it's filthy, everybody is shitty. You know, a friend of mine is not a friend of mine anymore. Over this, funnily enough. Um, one thing we always agreed on. There are really no good actors in, in any of this, really. And the people who suffer no, aren't the agree. people. Look, the people yeah, yes, suffer, but right? When you're looking at that relationship between Israel and Palestine... One of them is nuclear armed. Let's not forget to mention the nuclear weapons that the Israelis have got and have threatened to use. In fact, they were uh, there was uh, even a veil threat to use them against the Russians. There was a an academic that was talking about bombing European cities like Paris and Berlin with them. Uh, so they obviously do have those nuclear weapons uh, versus uh, this this um, Palestinian state states in Gaza with two and a half million people there. Uh, with absolutely nothing, no, with very nothing. little, and they they have very little, and so it's you know it's a David and Goliath style situation, and they do have the right to self defence. Of course they do. They of course really do. they're they're and, the and, occupied. You know, I agree with that's you. That's why I you know I, I, I that's why I would say uh, it's it's wrong to to just label these people as terrorists. They are the Israelis, of course. You know whatever a hundred times more terror than the Hamas have ever done. Um, Patricia, who commented earlier on, and I, 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 there's lots and lots of comments, but I know Patricia personally, I know she's emotionally invested in this, as I um, and as you obviously are. And she says, more civilians have been killed in Gaza in two months, less than two months, than 18 months in Ukraine. And I read the New York Times three days ago, and an advisor to the Pentagon, whose name escapes me, a well-known advisor, he's, he, he expressed shock real shock at what is happening in and what has happened in Gaza and he compared it to the US Air Force bombing of Iraq and Afghanistan and he said it was far worse and he explained why and I was reading this in the New York Times it is demonic in the eyes of some people, of course it's demonic I mean how could you do it, how could you do what they've been doing for two months, flattening a place, making it uninhabitable and the, you know, well, look, okay, what about Gideon? I mean, Gideon Levy is an Israeli journalist who's still got a column in Haaretz. Yeah, Haaretz, yeah. Even though he's so critical of the government. He spells it out, absolutely spells it out. He said that there's three reasons why, and I'm going to have to make sure I remember them now, <laughs> three reasons why uh, the Israelis are, have been indoctrinated, three ways they've been indoctrinated, right from literally from their first school days and by their parents, many of them too, uh, into this idea, first of all, that they are God's chosen people, even though actually, you know, people like Victor Rothschild, who made sure that the Israelis got their state after World War II, uh, was an, you know, an atheist. He was not even interested in religion. A lot of the people who created it, I think this religion is just a kind of veil for them. So first of all, we are the chosen people. Number two, we are victims as well as being the chosen people. Uh, but so this is this is kind of mentality that they grow up with. Uh, and finally, most importantly, according to Gideon Levy, uh, it's this idea of dehumanizing Palestinians. So they are less than human. He uses an example of waiting at a, uh, I don't know if you've heard it, but he, he is waiting at a, an ambulance, uh, as an ambulance in front of him with a, a, a seriously ill Palestinian who's trying to get through uh, the border to the hospital. 
and he's just sitting in his car and these these uh, Israeli soldiers are just playing cards by the, by the side there. Oh, we always make them wait for at least an hour before we check the ambulance and maybe let them through. And he started shouting at them, obviously these soldiers. And he said, look, what if it was your father in that car? And at that point, they pointed their guns at him, even though he's Jewish, uh, and started screaming and shouting at him because they don't like to hear that. Uh, they have dehumanized the Palestinians. These people are exactly uh, the same as the, they're being treated exactly the same as the as Nazis. The Nazis. Or the Jews. Yeah. The Nazis yeah. treated the, the uh, Slavs, the gypsies. There are, you are a part of a master race. And, and in fact, we had, a, we had a very good discussion on one of my programs a few years ago about this whole idea of master race. Is that what the chosen people, the chosenness of the Jews is? Uh, and it was Gilad Atzmon who was uh, saying, well, they're, they're making that comparison and various other people, you know. So this is where this is where we're at with this, is that there is a very similar mindset in the uh, is in ma- much of the Israeli population being ha- this hatred of Palestinians uh, than, than, as there was uh, with the Nazi sort of uh, the superiority of the SS and people like that. It's a, a kind of nuclear armed doomsday. Camp. You know, I've said this over the years and I've been criticised for it, but I'll say it again. While the Palestinians get murdered and while their properties get raised to the ground every few years, and now it's worse than ever, the Israelis are enslaved at birth. You said it. I had a big row with Norman Finkelstein last time he was on the programme about four years ago because um, I, I used to get on really well with Norman, but he didn't like... I took on this whole idea. I put it to him that the Israelis are enslaved. They're as much victims in, in a kind of a perverse way as they are victims as much as the Palestinian people because if you do that to children which goes on in Israel, we know this, if you do that to them, if you poison their minds from their earliest days and tell them that you've got a bunch of rats over the fence over there, and and what they want to do is they want to kill you. They want to kill you because you're God's chosen people. That's abuse. You know, that's a very mild way of putting it. It's beyond abuse. So you've got victims there. Okay, they don't get bombed to smithereens. They don't have nothing. They're not locked into a concentration camp. But abuse is abuse, and those people are enslaved as well. I want to ask you about this, Tony Gosling. Thisweek.org.uk. It matters not what we think of anybody's politics. You and I have been consistent our entire careers about the right to free speech, the right to an opinion, the right not to be persecuted for it. What is happening to Owen Jones at the moment? is shocking. Um, For our listeners who might not know, Owen Jones writes for The Guardian. Um, He's a bit woke, maybe. Um, He's very into gender politics and and stuff like that. But he's always been, through, through his life, I think, a defender of the rights of the people of Palestine. The IDF has embarked on a bit of a campaign to try and convince Western journalists who do support Palestine and have supported the people of Palestine. The IDF has been sharing with them materials, videos and images to say, look, look, look what happened on October 7th. It was really terrible. We have no choice but to do this. And I watched Owen Jones' video. He said, right, the IDF gave me some films. He said it was pretty bad. It was pretty terrible. And I don't condone what Hamas did and all of that. But he said, um, look, they didn't show me any hard evidence of beheaded babies or women being raped. And they've gone for him. Journalists writing for The Telegraph, Alison Pearson, your man who writes for The Spectator, uh, Brendan O'Neill, everybody's gone for him. They're trying to destroy Owen Jones, Tony. They're trying to finish him, basically. Get well, him you out know of- why I think, this, I think there's a very, very specific reason why this is. And uh, it relates to, I think it was a Mondorice ca- uh, cartoon that came out a few weeks ago, which showed uh, two bombs falling down from the sky, both with Israeli 
um, uh, you know, the flags of them. Uh, one of them is heading towards a woman with a baby, uh, say, and on it is written, no mercy. And an, the other bomb is heading towards a camera crew who's filming the woman with a baby, saying, no witness. And the Owen Jones's one of Owen Jones's last columns is making this exact point. This murder of journalists and the deliberate targeting and assassination of journalists by the Israelis over there. I mean, I was um, uh, commenti- commentating on my show about the, the killing of just two of the 70 now or so journalists who've been killed by the Israelis. And it's quite clear that they have been deliberately targeted for, well, for the obvious reasons, that the same reason as, you know, when we were out filming uh, demonstrations uh, with video cameras and flogging the footage to the local news, we were being arrested by the police so that we couldn't get that footage onto the news and we couldn't make a living. Uh, what they're doing is they're just killing the witnesses off. And this sales is, I mean, it's obviously despicable in itself. I was reminded very much of of, of uh, the death of Terry Jones at the hands of the coalition um, when it was in the Iraq invasion, if you remember that. He was the ITV journalist who was in a, a van with yeah. the film crew. Yeah. And uh, the Americans and the Brits just blew him up, machine gunned him, and uh, he died. So uh, that he can't obviously witness that. And, you know, But you see the message that that's sending is, oh, the journalists that you embedded with the forces who were sitting in an armored personnel carrier or in a tank are fine. You know, they're okay. So this is encouraging uh, the big mass media to make sure they don't send journalists in who are not under the supervision of the military. Uh, It's a pretty, I mean, we've been doing this, but I mean, the Israelis have been doing this on an unprecedented scale. Uh, the number of journalists being killed during this time is is way above the scale. And do you know I what mean, else? Think- do you know what else is going on? I mean, that's scurrilous, that that's scandalous as it is. But a, a lovely British doctor um, announced on on at a press conference the other day that a lot of um, surgeons that were trained by British surgeons they've gone missing as well. That they've been taken out of cars and spirited away somewhere well, to God knows Owen where. Jones's, Owen Jones's piece, anyway, if people want to read it, it's well yeah. worth I mean, I'm not a big fan of his, you know, but he says, who will shine a light on the atrocities in Gaza if all the journalists are wiped out? That's what the one the Israelis don't want to hear. That's what hurts them. And so that's what we need to be repeating again and again. And, and I'll tell you, if you, because I've worked in these, main, you know, had done done courses to do with them, um, uh, being in in uh, war war zones, I've never actually been in one myself, thank God. Although my colleague Martin Summers spent uh, uh, a year or so uh, in the middle of the Yugoslavian conflict in some really dicey situations, uh, is that if if you know that a journalist has been killed in a certain area, that means no other no other news networks are going to send journalists in there. So you just have to kill the first one, and then you know that. Of course, you know, how many reports are we seeing live from Gaza? None, hardly at all. There's one guy, I think, or maybe two guys. The BBC have been doing a bit of reporting from there, but hardly anybody else, because they know if they send a journalist in there, that journalist may never come out because the Israelis have already sent that very clear signal to the insurance companies uh, and to the manufacturers of the flak jackets that, you know, if you send a journalist in here, you're probably not going to see them again. Uh, And that's why they're doing this. And that's why they hate so much the truth that Owen Jones is telling them. You mentioned embedding, of course, I read a lot and did a dissertation on embedding years ago um, for listeners who don't know where that came from it the, the idea originally came out of the Vietnam War you know the perpetrators of these atrocities like Kissinger as Tony was discussing earlier and others they didn't like it very much that um, middle America mom and dad were having their dinner 
watching the television. They didn't like it that the reality of war was brought home to them by journalists. So the idea to bring the journalists with you, look after them, keep them, you know, where you could keep an eye on them, that that basically came out of the Vietnam War. And we saw it, obviously, in the in the Gulf War, didn't we? We saw the, the whole embedding thing. Now, we've only got, we've literally only got a few minutes left because I did want to um, mention briefly COP28 and what uh, might come out of that. Uh, I know. God, no. What might come out of another it? Another one. Two know. weeks these things go on Blah, for. blah, blah, says uh, Greta. Yeah. And so, you know, of course, it's quite the, the news around it has been quite funny. You know, I've been chuckling listening to it about uh, the uh, big oil deals being done down there, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, this is part of the Armageddonist accelerationist lunacy that is the climate change obsession. Now, I'm not saying climate change isn't happening. It is. But what's happening is, it's, again, a little bit like the anti-Semitism. It's been weaponized. The idea is that we're not allowed to even dig this stuff up ourselves. What are you talking about? You know, and and uh, there is the, the the idea that man may the man has caused the climate change. Well, I think that may well be, but I don't. I still don't think that it's um, absolutely uh, proven. Because what the thing that convinces me of that is to see all these people, these scientists over the years, including the editor of the New Scientist. Uh, being destroyed, their careers being destroyed, them being destroyed, you know, basically character assassinated. David Bellamy. They have a different point of view. This is clear evidence that this is a scam. David Bellamy. the thing that makes it even more evident is that King Charles, as he was Prince Charles, has created many of the uh, companies which are doing this carbon trading business, you know, the carbon offset stuff. So he stands to make a, a fortune out of this. And uh, that was the Panama Papers reveal. Yeah, that, that's way. right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, COP is an absolute, well, it's a pantomime, but it's actually like uh, uh, watching the end of the world unfolding. And, of course, that's why I mentioned him as a replacement for Kissinger. For Kissinger is because yeah. he is a massive mover in this self-emulation of the whole of the developed world. Well, did you, final comment from you. We've only got 90 seconds. I've got loads of comments to read then. Tell me this. When, I think it was the Sunday newspapers. I didn't know this, but I, I bet you, with your big silly brain on you, I bet you, you knew this. Did you know that in the north of England, did you know before Sunday, last Sunday, that when people die without any wills, their property um, oh, goes yeah. to the crown yeah. mother of God? Did you know that? Yeah, well, this is this is Rob Evans. He's done yeah. a brilliant job in the Guardian in in picking apart the black spider letters and all the King Charles stuff. I mean, listen, listen, this guy is a dictator. Did you see He's on Remembrance Sunday? Yeah. On on Remembrance Sunday, uh, there he is, all smug face in front of the uh, non-Remembrance cenotaph, where they forget to remember everything and then they just do it all again. Uh, he marched into, or yeah, sort of marched into the Foreign Office, a massive big door that only seems to open on Remembrance Sunday, straight into the Foreign Office with Sunak and Cameron close behind him. And then the next morning we hear, oh, Cameron has been made Foreign Secretary. Oh, OK. So uh, that guy was totally useless and destroyed Syria and Libya, amongst other things, uh, and who the British public kicked out in the referendum. Uh, oh, we're bringing him He's back, back again. Yeah. So this this is King Charles telling his little supine Goldman Sachs boy Sunak, oh, we want this guy in, and and that's who's running the country. I think it's now Charlie. 
Tony's on air tomorrow at five o'clock. Not the BCFM, not the BCFM politics show. <laughs> Bristol, it's brilliant. It's brilliant every week. I listen every week. You can challenge me if you want. I know. I know exactly what you talk about and who you talk to. No, no, listen, no. you got thirty seconds. I'm going to because you never asked me for anything ever. Tell us about the traitors of Arnhem. Thirty seconds. Where can they get your books? Well, actually, what I really want to say is there's a great Times article saying it's not really Charlie. Camilla wears the trousers. <laughs> Uh, really, you know, it's, it's, and she does and you can see for example with the reshuffle there are various people that Camilla's friends and relatives were saying oh we want this one out and they were out uh, so that's the way it's and it's this is run through something called the Order of the Garter which Tony Blair is now and Camilla are now all in there now the Queen's died it's, this is King Charles's little clique that runs the anyway, the Traitors of Arnhem well it's uh, a book about the end game of World War Two and how the Winston Churchill's private secretary, uh, Desmond Morton, uh, he was doing deals in 1944 with Hitler's private secretary, Martin Bormann, and how Bormann was secretly brought out by commandos trained in Hailing Island uh, to the UK and then managed to set up 750 companies over in South America after the war, which is the Fourth Reich we're dealing with today. And it's brilliant. I've got my copy over there on my shelf with my books. Tony, thanks for today, pal. Um, enjoy the rest of the week and the weekend. And tomorrow, 5 o'clock, UK time in Bristol, not at the BCFM Politics Show, thisweek.org.uk. Also check out Bilderberg.org. Until next time, T, thank you. And he's gone. God bless and God bless the listeners. Thank you, Richie. Cheers, buddy. Always good to have you on. Tony Gosling. Nobody's been coming on my shows longer than T. First met him in Spain years ago. I think I told you that before. Thank you for your messages. I really appreciate them. I thought I'd get more abuse. I am an idealist, you know. I used to, um, I chaired a meeting once. Now, I probably did tell this story, but I think it's a long time since I told the story, so I'll tell it again. Years and years and years and years ago, I chaired a meeting of um, a Sinn Féin meeting, basically. And uh, it was in Waterford, and Sinn Féin supporters and Sinn Féin politicians, would-be would councillors, would-be uh, TDs, were there. And there, were also, there was also a delegation from, from Belfast, and they came down. And they were having a chat about republicanism and Sinn Féin and the future of nationalism and stuff like that. And I got stuck in. And I was basically just there to moderate, but I was getting bored because there wasn't really any serious questions being thrown at the people on the panel because everybody in the audience was pretty much enamoured of, of them and what they were saying. And I decided I would do my kind of curmudgeonly, you know, devil's advocate kind of thing. And I started throwing questions at them, you know. And it kind of didn't go down well for a while, but then they kind of came around to the idea. I said, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Like, yeah, the, 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 the guy's making some interesting points about, um, you know, the history of the Troubles, as we would have called it in Ireland, how it began, where it began, and the, the violence, you know, where the violence went, the targets of the violence, which, um, which I was very interested in when I, when I became political in the early 90s, when I, when I became very interested in politics. And I had this nationalistic kind of fervour in me. You know, Ireland belongs to the Irish, Ireland should be united, blah, 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 and all of that. But... Um, discussions around what's the legitimate target and how far can a, can a people who are occupied or a people who are oppressed, how far can they go? What's fair game? Is everything fair game? Are there rules of engagement? Are there things beyond the pale, things you shouldn't do? And I, I always maintained that, you know, when IRA activists, when they murdered people 
who were not active militarily or were not active paramilitarily. So when the IRA murdered people because they were unionists, but people who themselves never picked up a weapon, I you lost me there and then. Whereas I said before, you could ma- I, I could always make the argument that if you believe as I believed, that the British military presence was an occupying force in the six counties, well then, that was a... You could make the argument that was a legitimate target, right? I, I don't know how I would be. I get asked all the time, well, do you think if you were growing up in the six counties, if you were growing up somewhere in the 60s and 70s, do you think you would have been on the streets, Richie? I don't know. You'd like to be the tough guy, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would have been, yeah. Yeah, I would have had the petrol bombs, yeah. Look, you just don't know until you've experienced it. Is um is 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 all it's my answer, I don't know. But yeah, I had a point I think there and I've just lost it. It doesn't matter. Lots of your comments coming in. Before that though, let me do two things. First of all, thank you so much to Mark Bayerski. Thank you, Mark. I'm not sure if Mark is listening. Um he's been doing some fundraising by way of a raffle on his YouTube channel for the Richie Allen Show. And I want to thank him and everybody who got involved in that. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Subscribe to Mark on YouTube.com. His channel is simply Mark Boyerski and his website is markboyerski.com. He is a top man. Thank you so much, Mark. I'll be back with you in 30 seconds. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 Vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. You're listening to your Richie Allen Show on richieallen.co.uk Welcome back to the programme. 25, it's just under 25 minutes to the top of the hour. I'm Richie Allen. It's good to be with you. Tony Gosling was great value, wasn't he? He's always good value as tea. I like people who are well briefed, who know their onions, as it were. You sent in dozens and dozens of messages. I really appreciate them. I think some of you understand where I'm coming from regarding the violence, and some of you don't, fair enough. You know, you've only got to listen back to, to my shows over the years. You've only got to look at the crap that has come my way for being pro Palestine for being, you know, somebody who said time and time again that I do not believe that Israel has a right to exist. And I've outlined my reasons many times. You know, the history of the region, the treaties which, you know, basically started it, which gave rise to the creation of the state, everything that happened since. But but it does exist, like it or lump it. I suppose every country which has a name, every country which has its... um boundaries drawn on a map it came into being on the back of the bloodshed of one group of people or another I know that sounds very general but it kind of is the truth really um, pre-67 borders I suppose might be might be my I don't know if I was given you know a wand, wave a wand, what would you do pre-67, pre-June 67 borders, you know that nearly happened, it didn't happen Jenny says, pollution is man-made Climate change isn't, and they are doing their best to confuse the two, says Jenny. And independent scientists are saying that we are heading for a cooling, not a warming. We don't have enough CO2. And carbon credits is one of the reasons, says Jenny, they are pushing the climate change agenda. They don't seem to be very interested 
in other environmental issues. Thank you, Jenny. It's a good point. They are conflating those two issues. They're very clever at doing that. You know, that's that's quite clever, you know. Uh, Jonathan says, I still find it unbelievable that the IDF could be completely taken by surprise by a few mercenaries on motorised hang gliders. It reminds me of a story I once heard about a first world country sophisticated air defence system being outwitted by a man in a cave. Yes, Jonathan, that's a very good point. Don't forget, look, as has been published in the British press, as was published in the Israeli press, a number of women, IDF soldiers, women, um, went on record and said they warned their superiors that something was going on on the other side of the fence. They warned their superiors that Hamas was up to something, that there seemed to be a lot of movement on farms, people coming and going that were not um, the regular people. And these women went public and said their superior officers told them they would be court-martialed if they didn't shut up. Now, what was going on there? Yes. Give us some credit on the Richie Allen show, will you? We, every theory is put out there. You know, we discuss everything. We don't hide anything. Yes, I'd love to know more about that. I'd love to know why it took six hours for the Israeli Defence Force to mobilise and to fight back. Six hours. Six hours in 2023 with smartphone technology and all that goes with that. It is very suspicious. But 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 the truth is, if even if even if we say right, we believe that there was a stand down order given or we believe that somehow the Israelis knew about it and allowed it to happen, throwing their own people under the bus because they wanted to use the capital then, you know, of the attack, to use that um, um, currency of the attack, if you want to use it like that, to take that and then go in to Gaza and do what it's doing. There are others who have been saying for weeks that the Israelis want to build their own canal, right? Alas, Suez, their own canal. That's been reported by independent Israeli journalists. It's filthy, it's murky, it's dirty, it's rotten, and you just don't know. Of course it's possible that it was allowed to happen. I'll tell you who, who it has benefited. Not that I believe he would have been the one given the order, because I believe Netanyahu is the... If Rishi Sunak is a puppet, so is Bibi Netanyahu. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it. If uh, Leo Varadkar, if Joe Biden is a puppet, and he is, well, so is uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Hawkish as he might be, disgustingly draconian and fascistic as, as he might be, and, and he seems it. He certainly. This is a guy who tried to get his wife to take the flack for his corruption um, uh, charges. He, he's, he's scum. I know it's uh, unbecoming of a journalist to use terminology. He's about the worst shit heap of a man that has ever bestrode the international political stage. He's a shit arse, right? In every sense of it. But he's a puppet, in my opinion. Yeah, I can believe they, they allowed it happen. But, but he's benefited, or at least his coalition government, you know. He had thousands of Israelis taking to the streets to protest what he was doing to the Supreme Court in, in Israel. He was turning Israel, basically, into a dictatorship. And the Israeli people didn't like it. Because they want the Israeli Supreme Court to be able to check and to balance when the government gets out of hand. And he was, going, he, he was basically trying to destroy the Supreme Court. Thousands and thousands of people taken to the streets. He has the charges hanging against him. He's filthy. He is as bent as a seven-bob note. And all of a sudden, bang, October 7th, Jews are killed. And they are killed. 
right? Israelis, not Jews. They might be Jews, some of them. Some of them might not be. Israeli and Jew are not the same thing. It worked out for Bibi, didn't it? And for his party. Again, I'm not saying he's in charge and that he would have given any stand-down order. But it's very suspicious when you have women. Not, it doesn't matter that they're women. They could have been men. But when you have soldiers saying, we knew something was going down and we told them. And at the very beginning of this, the Egyptians said, we told them. And this was published again in the Times. It was published in The Guardian. It was published in The Sun, The Daily Mail. It was in all the papers. The Egyptians said, we warned them that a serious attack was imminent. And they did nothing. But if you're going to be a decent sort, if you're going to be a decent journalist, you have to say that still on the table remains the possibility that they were caught cold. There is a lot of very interesting stuff that warrants investigating, of course. We've just discussed it. But for the moment, you've got to accept that maybe they were caught cold. Maybe. You know Kevin Barrett, don't you? He's been on this programme a thousand times. A Muslim a staunch supporter of Gaza, of Palestine, no time for Israel. Kevin maintains, and he's got um, his own contacts in the field of intelligence, and he does have contacts, he's got good contacts, Kevin. He maintains to this day that it was a triumph for Hamas. He reckons that it was a great military coup by Hamas, and he doesn't buy the idea that the Israelis, to further another agenda, allowed it to happen, in order to garner international support to do what we've seen, you know, happen in Gaza, which is tens of thousands of people killed, maybe. Thousands of children. It's murky, it's filthy. You can speculate all day long, but ultimately, we don't know. You know, we don't know. The only thing we do know is, again, thousands of civilians, men, women and children are dead. And as Tony Gosling quite rightly said, and he was absolutely right to say it, uh, because <clears throat> so much of Gaza is in rubble now, the real death number or the death toll is probably even higher again uh, because we don't know how many people are missing or where they are. I'm going to take a tune. When I come back, more of your comments. It's coming up for 16 and a half minutes to the top of the hour. And I'm Richie Allen, your BBG Thursday's programme. It's good to be with you. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You turn me on. Music from Simple Minds alive and kicking on the Richie Allen Show. We're coming up, so we are, to uh, 12 minutes, 11 and a half minutes to the top of the hour. There is a podcast now, a new podcast. It's not new, it's relatively new, just to give it a plug. It is, it's called The Papers, and it airs, The Papers, it doesn't air anywhere. It's a podcast, so it's online. It is available online wherever you get your podcasts, Monday to Friday, about 25 minutes long. I look at the newspapers here in Blighty, and I go through them, and I record myself going through them, and I put it online. It's called The Papers, whichever podcast provider you use. You will find it. Just to let you know, there will be the papers. There will be an episode tomorrow because it's Monday to Friday. The Richie Allen Show never sleeps 24-7 on the case. Never stops working, he says. Sending yourself flowers. I am. 
Damn right I am. Who else is going to send me flowers? Thank you for your messages. So the papers, yes, it's available at all good podcast channels. I'm on Twitter too, even though I don't tweet very often. It is BBG Richie on Twitter. Um, if you want to connect to me on there, you can. There will be... I had a little bit of news. I was going to share it with you. And then I thought, nah, I won't. Will I share it with you now? I'll give you a teaser for the crack. Right, here we go. Right. Very early next year. So around about Feb- February time, I'm going into a studio with Paul Ripley and with a couple of musicians that are known to Paul, very good musicians, into a proper recording studio. And for the hell of it, I'm going to record an album. Now, for the laugh, right? Not because I've got any illusions or even delusions about my musical talent. I do not. But for the laugh. It was Paul's idea um, some months ago when we talked about it. And what we're going to do is we're going to cut an album of cover versions, obviously. So I'm going to sing some songs that I like. We're going to kind of tie this in with Sunday Morning Melodies. And then I'm going to release it for the crack. It'll be CD, I think, and we'll have some limited edition vinyl. It won't be that expensive. And then sometime in the early spring, there'll be a concert. I swear to God, this is actually going to happen. There there will be a concert. And it'll be in Manchester somewhere at a venue. And I'll be performing with the band. (laughs) I find it funny myself, I'm even saying this out loud. But I said to Paul, well, I, I tease it out over the over the Christmas period. And he said, yeah, go on, tease it out. So proper recording studio. We've selected 11 songs, most of them up-tempo songs, and um, going to record them. Funnily enough, having no real musical ability, which I don't, and I'm not in any way fishing for compliments here, it's never deterred me. You know, I'd be the first guy karaoke to do some karaoke, Charlie Hockey and all of that. So yeah, so 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 I've always loved it and I've always wanted to do it. You know, not record myself, but I've always wanted to get a band and jump up on a stage and have a bit of a crack. So that's something we're going to do in the early new year. Just as it's funny, it's one of those things, it's been a very difficult three years for everybody, hasn't it? For you, for me, for our families, your family, it's been difficult. And it's changed us in many ways. It really has. I've changed a bit. I was always a bit of a cynic, but I I was always very open-hearted. I'm a little bit more cynical now than I was and that kind of bothers me because it it feels in a way that they took a little bit of me you know the architects of the last three years that they stole a little bit of me but I'm kind of determined to get it back if that makes any sense regardless of what they're doing at the moment with their climate scams and their cashless societies I'm determined to hold on to 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 the me that I was when I was 21 or even 31 so that's kind of where it came out of you know things I wanted to do get up on a stage and sing some songs even though I can't sing. I'm not rubbish now, but I can sing in key. And so we'll make an album and then we'll we'll have a concert. Okay, now, before I go, um, I wanted to mention Shane McGowan because I love Shane, love his music. I was lucky enough to meet him, lucky enough to see the Pogues play live. Um, Spiro Skouras is a lovely guy and a great journalist. And once upon a time, he told a wonderful anecdote about Shane McGowan on this programme. But it is too long to share with you today but I will dig it out for uh, another spin before Christmas I'll dig it out it's a great anecdote by Spiro have a listen to the great actor Kiefer Sutherland talking about his encounter with Shane McGowan and in the back of the bar there was a table set up and there was a group having dinner and the group was Sinead O'Connor Van Morrison 
Ronnie Wood, and Shane McGowan. What a group. That's and like a super I thought, group. Like, yeah, that, that's something you're never going to see. And I knew Ronnie Wood. Yeah. And so he invited me up to say hello. And I introduced myself and I said hello. And I couldn't help but notice this is how we start our conversation that Sinead O'Connor was drinking milk. Well, good on her. And everybody else was not. <laughs> and I sat down and then the, you know, the cardinal mistake of politics and, ah. and the history of politics was started being discussed. And Shane McGowan, who I did not know, uh, he and I did not share a similar view on the history of Scotland. And before you know it, the two of us were fighting and we were rolling around on the floor and I remember Van Morrison laughing. And I won't get into the fight that yes. much, but it ended. Yes. And I got up and I said, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed, I'm very sorry, and I walked away. And Shane McGowan at that time had a cast on his right arm that looked as well lived in as anything I've ever seen. <laughs> and he did not have a lot of teeth <laughs> no, at the no, time either. No, no, that's changed since yet. So fighting just seemed unfair. <laughs> so I excused myself and I, I went to the bar and I had a drink and, and about three hours later the bar is almost empty everybody's gone and I get a tap on the shoulder and it's Shane McGowan and he says oi I need a place to stay and I said you got to be kidding me three hours ago we were fighting on the floor he said that was three hours ago now I need a place to stay <laughs> and I said well what about your mates and he said they're gone and I was so kind of impressed with his directness that I said well do you want a drink and he said sure so we sat and I had like the last that. drink, walked back to my hotel. Uh, I got out a bunch of blankets and I made a bed for him on the couch and a pillow and he went to sleep and I went to sleep and I got up in the morning expecting him to still be there because it was quite early. And all the blankets were perfectly folded. You couldn't have done it better. The pillow was on top of the blankets and Whoa. as I looked over to the desk, there was a note that he had written on the hotel stationery. And it was the most beautiful letter I'd ever read. Really? Uh, it was like poetry. And it was just a thank you note. It, but it was so generous and uh, the things he had to say about me and our night and yeah. humanity. And, and it was quite long. Yes. Uh, and I've still got this letter to this what day because it changed my perspective. I can imagine. Uh, don't judge a book by its cover and yeah. very rarely trust first encounters. Thanks for listening this week. Thanks to Tony Gosling. I'll speak to you on Sunday, if you're interested. Sunday morning melodies at 10 o'clock UK time. Closing out with Shane McGowan and the Pogues and their version of Dirty Old Town. Have a great weekend. Rest in peace, Shane McGowan. I met my love.